Is there any gain in our toil? Is there meaning to life? The preacher's meditations in Ecclesiastes call us to consider life under the sun, existence without a loving, benevolent God over it all. Along the way, this wisdom book calls the weary and the skeptical to deal with the inevitability of death, and in so doing, discover how is there any gain in You're listening to a podcast of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. We exist to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people whole in Him. All right, let's go to the Word together today and hear God's voice to us. I'm going to read all of chapter 8 together. So that's verse 1 all the way through 17, and we'll pray and I'll preach. Ecclesiastes 8, 1 through 17. This is God's Word. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the, com- the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. No man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell, to tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence of, against an evil deed is not ex- executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There's a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that he has done on earth, how neither day nor night do with one eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. How much, however much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Let's pray together. The Lord, we come thankful that you've given us you have given us your word we bow before you our father you are in heaven and with reverence and awe we come to you asking you to feed us this morning we thank you for your servant throughout time and servants who have listened who have proclaimed Christ who have told us of the mysteries of God and as we open your word today we ask that we have had, we would have hearts that are humble pliable ready to change and honor you. I ask for your help this morning. Would you have mercy on me, a 
a sinner that needs your help as I proclaim the goodness of Jesus Christ. We thank you for Ecclesiastes and we ask that we would learn and be shaped by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, yesterday morning, uh, my kids got pretty excited when I told them we would be going to the Princess Anne YMCA to do a little bit of swimming. Uh, I don't know if your kids are like mine, uh, but they just love to swim. I mean, it's because their father loves to swim. Um, so I took Evie and Hudson and Ian, and we went over there. And we did some swimming. It was, it was great. Uh, the boys passed their swim tests, uh, which means they get those little bungee cord necklaces, you know. Very special. They did a great job. I'm very proud of them. Evie also did awesome. Not quite there and ready, but if you know anything about her, she is tenacious and ready and competitive and just as able. Um, I'm sure she'll be passing that swim test pretty soon. Now, this reminded me of something though I was there. If you've ever been to like a public pool or maybe like a club pool, you've probably had the experience of being watched by a lifeguard, a lifeguard who is in control of that aquatic space, one that kind of has the rule of the roost in a sense. Some of you, you probably know this by going to the beach, you know what a lifeguard is roughly. But if you're at like a pool where it's enclosed and it's smaller, it feels a lot more real. It feels a lot more like they have domain. They have like the, the rulership of what's going on. They're closer. They're there to be able to kind of tell you what to do. They can see your face to face, really kind of get on that. And not all of them are like this, I admit that. But I'm sure you've run into people who definitely love that amount of authority. And they're like, they're taking this thing very seriously. They love to tweet the whistle. They love to tell people what to do. They love to make sure that you know that you're supposed to follow what they say, right? You've probably seen this. Uh, they kind of maybe have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. Um, but I mean, it always kind of cracks me up. I'm like, it's not necessarily that they're following the rules. I'm glad of that, right? It's a good thing. But I'm like, you're 17. <laughs> and I have four children of my own. You're telling me I can't like throw them around the pool? Like, I understand you can't run by the pool and all this stuff. But I'm like, come on. It's kind of like that little attitude, like their position and pride of what they can, they can tweet the whistle and tell me what to do. So I understand that, you know, you're the dominant force in the pool area. All right, I'll, I'll listen up. Some of you may be like me, you kind of roll the eyes at these kind of people, but you're like, okay, okay, you know, I'll, I'll make sure that our kids don't do too much crazy stuff or don't walk in the old people lap zone or something like that, I understand. But, but, but more than the rules, it's kind of the way that people do it, Right? It's, uh, it's the feeling then that there's some sort of power struggle going on here. Now, I don't know if you went to like an actual college or, or, or maybe had some experience at like the mall like this. Oh. That was not even meant to be a joke at all. Sorry. I went to a Bible college. Yeah, yeah, everyone, everyone just get offended. That's good. I don't know if, let's go back to the mall, actually, that's a better place to go. Everyone's probably been to the mall, or at least heard of the movie Paul Blart, Mall Cop. We had uh, these security guards at Northland where I went, they were very sincerely, very, taking their responsibility serious about being security guards. These college campuses, we'd call them cardboard cops, you know, like, like, what kind of authority they really have, I'm not quite sure, but like if you dress them up in a, in a badge and a uniform and they've got their flashlight, I mean, they own the joint. That's the way it goes. Uh, the other people that I see this happen to is the TSA workers, right? Like you could have a really good trip through TSA, 
Just mind your own business, work your way through, please don't look at me, please don't do it. Or, or you can have a terrible opportunity, and they rifle through all your bags, you gotta like repack everything, you get all padded down, and like they do a drug test on you to make sure you're not like Pablo Escobar. I mean, all these things, and you're like, who are you, and who do you think I am? Like, what's going on with all this? Now, I wanna be careful, because I'm very thankful for TSA, I'm very thankful for lifeguards, and I am mostly thankful for Paul Blart, mall cop. I recognize that these are good positions and they're, they're good for us. But sometimes it can be really frustrating the decisions that they make and the power that they wield over us, right? We kind of all get that to some way or one, to, to one extent or another. But if you're still young and haven't experienced much, let me tell you something. Uh, you can't thwart the lifeguard that's in control. You can get kicked out of the pool and be done. Um, a college campus security guard can make your life miserable. So don't upset them. TSA workers can make your trip a lot worse. So don't tick them off or like be a smart aleck. It's better for you to understand your role in the system and to pass through. In each of these scenarios, you're going you're gonna to learn to submit to the one who is in charge. And you're going to operate in their domain because they have some sort of control and you'd like to get through successfully and have some sort of longevity in that process. That's what we're actually going to see here in our passage today. What's going on is you, you and I are not bound to listen to a lifeguard or a security guard or a TSA agent for, forever. I mean, these guys are kind of, in a sense, like little kings over their smaller domains. They're not a high authority necessarily, but as we are in their domain, we would be wise to listen to them and, if possible, to obey their commands. The same is true in ultimate reality, like in the universe. The president of the United States, or maybe the, the governing powers around us that enforce our country's laws, are not the ultimate authority. And we know that to be true. We understand that. But we would be wise to listen, to submit, and if it's not sinful, to obey the rules that they have put in place. This is called wisdom, even though it can be incredibly frustrating. I've entitled today's sermon, a heavenly citizen is a wise pilgrim. So again, a heavenly citizen, Christian, is a wise pilgrim. I'm trying to help us here from, from the call from Ecclesiastes 8 that warns us really against an over-realized eschatology, that the kingdom of God is somehow here and it's consummated fullness altogether. It's not. The kingdom of God has not come in consummated fullness yet, and so our expectation should be set according to the truth. We should live wisely as pilgrims or exiles who have a far superior king. But we have been called to live in the here and now until he returns. Now, in, the, in this passage here, the basic question that we're trying to answer kind of brackets the whole discussion as we get into it. He's talking again about wisdom. So what we're going to do is look at verse 1, and then we're going to look at verse 16 and 17, because it's really going to help us understand the whole. Verse 1 says this, Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. In other words, wisdom is the great solution for all the struggles and the problems that we face. And even in a sense, as he says here, makes a face shine. We're looking for it in some way or another so that we can live wisely in the world. We want to be wise. We, we want to follow wise people and wise advice. We want to do those things which will actually be the, for our betterment and more joy. 
And we know this to be true already, but wisdom is so valuable. It has power to help a person gain perspective and even correct their attitude in the midst of the life of adversity that we live. He's going to help us here and go on and dig into wisdom to try to explain the inner workings of what God is actually doing in the world. But by the end, we realize what he realizes, that the wise teacher can't find out all that God has done. Look at verse 16 and 17. He says this, When I applied my heart to know wisdom, and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. I mean, he, he is about to tell us all about wisdom, to give us wise and righteous advice, but ultimately... This doesn't explain all the questions that you and I have about God and how He works in our world. There's so many things that are left unspoken or unanswered to us. At the end of our pursuit, we still find ourselves in some ways scratching our heads, trying to figure out how God works. He says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day or night do one's eyes see sleep, he, he begins here by kind of explaining his dedication to the, the, the pursuit of wisdom. He says it this way. He's, he's describing the process of one who goes after wisdom and tries to understand the business of God and what he is doing in his short life. And he does so, in a sense, with all of his strength and all of his time. Now, if we were just to qu quickly read this through, it seems as though it's hard to see the exact connection in the translation here, but I think you'll understand he's not saying that the result of all his searching for wisdom is found that everyone is not sleeping at night or day. That's kind of how we read it in the first time. But it's not actually what he's saying. He's describing how he, the teacher, pursued wisdom. He was relentless. He worked night and day, even to the point of losing sleep, in order to find wisdom and the meaning of life. That is what he is saying he did. And even in all of his effort, he could see it, but he still couldn't understand. He still couldn't find that, that central meaning and understanding how God works. He says, Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know. Remember he started at the beginning saying who is wise, right? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? But look how he ends. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Wow. Now this is not meant to be a statement of futility, but rather actually of balance and perspective. It is meant to help us understand that we are still creatures before the almighty creator and that we are of a very different type than he is. There is one God. There are many creatures, but there is only one God, the one who made all of us. And with this perspective, we can hear the wisdom that he will give to us now. We can hear it rightly, not in pride, in a sense like ready to conquer all the stuff in the world with all of our right understandings about how all the different things work together, but rather in humility ready to understand ourselves and receive this practical wisdom from the writer here, how we will live before God as pilgrims in this world. This is what I want to do. I want to move through this passage with three main points. I don't always do it this way, but I think this will help. It comes straight from the text. 
And you're going to see as they come out that they're helpful for us to walk through. So kids, if you're taking notes, if you guys are taking stuff down, I'm going to give you these three notes, these three points, and we're going to keep on coming back over and over to them. Here's the first one. Or obey your earthly rulers. Obey your earthly rulers. The second one, and adults, you're allowed to write, write them down too. That's good. Um, hope in the judge who is over all earthly rulers. Number three, enjoy God's gifts in this pilgrimage. I'll say them again. Obey your earthly rulers. Hope in the judge who is over all earthly rulers and enjoy God's gifts in this pilgrimage. All right, let's start with number one. Obey our earthly rulers, what he's telling us to do. In verse two, he says this. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And a wise heart will know the proper, the proper time in a just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this... All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Now, that last verse is really important for our context and understanding what he's talking about. It gives us context into what the wisdom he's going to give us is so important. He says that this observation that he's going to make is all about the real life that we can see around us right now, the affairs of men. It's extremely practical in that way, right? He's telling us what, it's, what he sees when a person has a certain amount of control over another person. He's already talked about oppression all the way through Ecclesiastes. This understanding that there is some way now in this present moment that some people can take their power and their resources and have control or hurt over another human being. That's the realm that he's dealing with right now. He's trying to help us understand that. This is, in a sense, their domain of rulership. It's kind of like the lifeguard at the pool. They do have some sort of rule in this area. Now, what does he say we are to do? Well, in that domain, we are to have a posture of obedient submission. He says that we are to keep or obey the command of the king. We're not to be hasty to go from his presence. And what he means by this is that when a, a command comes that is foolish or weird or nonsensical, we're not to storm out and say, I know better somehow, but rather obey willingly. We're to understand that even if we disagree with such a ruler, that to protest is futile. He does what he wants. He says here, he's, like, he's the supreme commander. No one questions the king. In short, unless we are being asked to sin, let me make sure that's really clear here. If we're asked to do what is sin, we already know what the answer is. That's easy. Unless we are asked to do sin, we are to wisely obey and steer clear of trouble or any evil thing, as he says here. Now, at this point, though, even as he's doing this, he offers us hope. He's going to give us the reason why we ought to obey our rulers and helps us to understand what we're sitting in, what kind of context we're in. The end of verse 5 and then the 6 tell us why we should do this. He says, the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. 
For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. Now, it would seem like the smart person, a wise person knows, in a sense, just when to say the right words and the timing of those words and how to say those things. And that's certainly true. That's, that's general wisdom. That even the world understands that. But that's actually not what he's saying here. We, we've heard this language before, right? Chapter 3. He told us that there's a time for everything and a season for everything so that we understand when stuff happens around us that does not make sense, that seems unjust, we have an understanding of what's going on. We know that there's a time and season for everything. And so the wise person looks on and recognizes that even though in this arena things don't seem to be going the right way, there's something bigger at play here, far more important to trust this. You may be dealing with a ridiculous ruler, an unjust ruler, a foolish ruler, but that doesn't mean that he or she has the final word on any matter. No, we know this. There will be a time for everything. And the wise person knows that, especially in the face of some sort of frustrating leadership. Now, verse 7 introduces us back into the discussion on the limits of the things that we can control. And this is talking both to us and the king. It's like everybody actually here. He says, For he does not know what is to be, or who can tell him how it will be. No man has power to retain the spirit or power of the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. He's saying this, No one really has the control that they think they have. Remember that there's something going on that's bigger than here, especially when it comes to that all-important question about life and death. You know this. So far, we don't know anyone who's lived forever. I mean, Methuselah stayed around for a long time, but he died. We understand this. It's this no one here living has been around forever, and this is the point he's making. No one has power to retain the spirit of a person. No one has power over the day of their death. And then he kind of explains it a little bit better here if you see this. Uh, there's no one else who can fight that war, the war of death, Back in this time, it would be very, very normal for instead of the king to go out and maybe his troops, he would hire people to go into that battle for him. And that way he kind of have a substitution. He kind of exchange himself out and he could put those people in. Kohelet's point here is like, no, 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 no one else can fight this battle for you. There's no substitutions. There's no discharge from this war. You are going to have to face mortality. In the land of the living, you may not have had to do that physically, but here you can't hire soldiers to do but only you can do before God. When it comes to the end of your life, there is no substitutes, no discharge from the responsibility of dying. You don't have that kind of control. And then he finally says, your wickedness, now think like wicked uh, scheming plots, your wickedness won't save you from your death. You don't have control of your death. It's the enemy that we all must face. And these are some of the reasons then that we can be confident in our obedience of our earthly rulers, even if they seem unjust or foolish. So I wonder how many of us need to listen to this wisdom today to understand in cases where we are asked to do things that are not sinful, we would understand that we are to obey. Do we obey the king then? Do we understand that this is a wise posture in our world today? Who is it that you must obey? Is it your boss? Is it maybe like an association you're part of? Is it colleagues? Is it the government? Um, I want you to hear me very clearly. 
I am not in any way asking us to sin against God. No way. I'm saying there are several things that we disagree with. We don't think it's the right way to do it. We think it's unjust and there's all kinds of problems that we would stand up for the right thing. And there's still ways that we recognize we still need to obey these things. We need to do so with the right attitude and understand that God has put this rulership in place. I am saying that Christians know that there are certain hills that they just aren't worth dying on at all. And it's okay and it's not unfaithful to do so and to obey. And so we submit to our rulers who do not have our best interest in mind. Those who uh, do not hold God's glory as the greatest goal of their life. And we can rightly submit to and obey our rulers and wisely interact as pilgrims, those who are set for a heavenly city. So this brings us to our second point today. Not only are we to obey our earthly rulers, but we are to hope in the judge who is over all earthly rulers. So we start with what we can see, right? Obey our earthly rulers. That can give us confidence here. It says, hope in the judge who is over all eternity and over all those rulers that you're struggling with. In verse 8, we ended with the reality that no person really has the power over death at all. But verse 10 picks up with another sad reality. He, uh, it introduces the injustice of it all. He says, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. I mean, can you believe it? What's going on with these guys? These people who are wicked received a proper, honorable burial. What in the world? Even after they're dead, they're still getting lauded as the good guys. And we know that they're actually the wicked ones. How can it be fair? I mean, this sounds very much like Job. Job talks about the wicked ones and how even after they die, they receive the, the, the plaudits and the applause and all the different honorable things. He says in chapter 21, um, when he is carried to the grave, a watch is kept over his tomb. Like someone is honorable enough to stand there and make, make much out of what's going on. And this is the, the wicked man. The clods of the valley are sweet to him. All mankind follows after him, and those who go before him are innumerable. <laughs> and Kohelet's outburst is, this is vanity. This is ridiculous. This is, this is hevel. I can't believe this is happening. And in verse 11, he explains how this happens. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. He says that when someone does, let's, let's, let's go through this scenario. When someone does an evil deed and they look around them, they don't get in trouble. They hurt somebody else, they don't get in trouble. Like the, judge, the judgment against what they have done is not executed speedily. No one cares for some reason or they got away with it somehow. So what do they do? They do it again. They try it again. And what happens then? Well, it's, it's still not answered speedily. Perhaps they're doing it really sneakily, like being really sneaky about it, or it's perhaps like that people are like, I'm not messing with that guy. Whatever it is, what this verse is showing us here is that it makes then the heart say, I can do whatever I want. I am in power here to hurt others. But that simply isn't the truth. You and I know that. Look at verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, 
because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. He's on a different playing field. You get it? He's more concerned in the bigger picture here. Kohelet, he just can't take it anymore. You know, he's like, okay, I'm Orthodox. I got to tell you the truth about God. I know what I can see, but I have to remember and back up and take the promises of God seriously. He has to speak the truth and ground himself in the promises that God has given to him. He may not understand all the inner workings of the affairs of men and how God will bring justice. He may not even know what happens to men after death, like we do because of the New Testament, but he knows that God is creator and that man is creature before him. Thus, he is to fear God. He says then, go ahead, sinner. <laughs> do your evil and prolong your short life. Do, do you get it? Like even that, it's just a short life. What do you got? A hundred years? Go ahead, prolong your life, do all the things that you think are somehow getting you ahead. You will not get far before the judge of all creation. There's no way that you can escape God. Again, he brings us to see that man is divided into two groups those who fear God, and those who do not fear God. And ultimately, even if the righteous man dies at an early age, and the wicked man dies in an old age, they both die, and they will both meet their maker. They will both one day stand before the judge. Now, he doesn't go right here to the judgment seat, and, but uh, where, where the other places in the scripture talk to us about this. He simply says this, it will not go well for the one who does not fear God. Now, that may seem like a very simple statement to us, but it's huge. Because everything else in his life shows that what's going on for them is well. It seems like the wicked are doing really well. And those who are righteous, they're not doing very well. He turns it on its head and says, those who fear God, for them it will go well. There are two clear applications here for us. First, if you do not fear God, it will not go well with you. Hear me very clearly. This is God's word. This is, this is not the message from Chris. This is God's word to his people. Listen and allow this to sink in. The scriptures are very clear in other places that those who do not fear God will receive the wrath of God and eternal punishment in hell. That is not scare tactics, guys. That's not twisting your arm here. This is what the Bible says is true. This is what God has shown us to be true. And it is so the most loving thing I could ever do to tell you, fear God, because if you don't, he will be against you and it will not go well with you. We have to understand this rightly. And I call you to face this God, to humble yourself, to repent of your sin to trust in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who took the wrath of God on himself for us. Th this is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, that God saves sinners. I don't know if you listened to what Nathan was praying this morning. Did you realize what it was centered in? It was centered in Jesus. It wasn't saying, Lord, make us better people so that you can accept us. Oh man, guys. The reason we worship our Lord Jesus Christ, the reason that we say trust him, we say we walk in the spirit, that we, we follow after him, that we love him with our heart, soul, and mind is because if we do not have Jesus, we don't have anything. It doesn't matter how good we are. 
We cannot save ourselves. Jesus has fulfilled all that the law requires. And this is our righteousness. And so at the cross, he took the wrath of God that you and I deserve. Not deserved, that we deserve today. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, took that for us. And today, if you do not fear God, can I, can I, can I call you to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to repent of your sin and to trust him alone as Savior and King? All you kids out there, this is not just playing games. We want you to hear clearly of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray regularly that you would know Christ and walk according to his ways. He calls us to view him rightly as a whole, the just and good God. But there's a second clear implication here, guys. Very clear. It's for those of us who fear God. You and I can hope, not that our life will be great here on earth. That is not our great hope. Our great hope is not getting our best life now whatsoever. It's that God is the judge and it will go well for those who fear him. Now, he's made it very clear to us to understand what that means. We're not trusting in our righteousness. We're not trusting in all the good and wise things that we do. We are trusting in him and him alone. I call us to that. And we can trust him. We can trust the words here in Ecclesiastes that it will go well for us who fear God. So, have confidence in God. Trust the judge who is over all the earthly kings even though the things that are around us don't look so good. We trust the one who is over all these things, the king who will give life and gave his life for us wicked sinners. And remember that God, who did something this incredible, will certainly come through on his promises. So have confidence in him. When things around us look so unfair and foolish and terrible, trust God, hope in him. Now, finally, I want us to look at verses 14 and 15 for our final point. Not only should we obey our earthly rulers and hope in the judge who is over all these earthly rulers, but lastly, we should enjoy God's good gifts in this pilgrimage, whatever they may be. Let me read verse 14 and 15. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Now, here's the Kohelet that we know, right? The, the, the wisdom teacher, as he brings us together, who is not an optimist, it seems like, whatsoever, but rather is looking at things and saying, Hevel, this is ridiculous. I can't grasp the understanding of what's going on. How is it that a righteous person seems to work out to get the things that a, a wicked person gets or should get? And a wicked person, they do all this awful stuff before God and don't fear and they somehow prolong their life, and they're blessed somehow. What sense does that make? Remember, he said this last week in chapter 7, verse 15. But there, his response to all of this was actually confronting our self-righteous pharisaical hearts. Remember that? He said, don't be too righteous, don't be too wise. Trying to help us understand we should not be trying to predict the future by our righteousness and getting it all right. Here, though, he tells us something different. His focus is on living with men before God on this pilgrimage. So since we shouldn't trust our righteousness and wisdom, and since the world that we live in uh, you know, can, can, can often seem unjust, what should we do? Verse 15. 
and I commend joy. This guy's crazy. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Now listen carefully here. There are no promises to us of temporal final justice. Do you understand what I'm talking about here? We strive for justice, rightly so, in our communities around the world. We want justice to reign. That's a good and right thing. That is a Christian perspective and virtue. We should do those things. We are not promised final and complete judgment and justice in our lifetimes. But we are promised that he will be just. And on this, we can rely. We can trust him. And since this is true, we do believe this, the writer tells us to enjoy the good gifts that God has given to us in this temporal life. Whatever kind of difficult existence that you may have, can I tell you, take stock of the good gifts, the food, the drink, the family, the friends, the church body. I mean, uh, the, a warm bed to sleep in at night, the beauty of artwork and delicious smells. I lost some of that stuff during COVID. I, I couldn't smell anything. I said to someone, like, what was the word? I was like, I was disappointed. I, like, food lost so much of its pleasure. Do you recognize that that's a gift from God to us? Don't take it lightly. We recognize that in this pilgrimage, as exiles, he has given several joys along the way. Don't take those lightly, guys. He calls us to enjoy those things rightly before him as gifts from God. So whatever scrap of joy you can gain from God's good gifts in this life, do it. He's telling us that living a discouraged, frustrated, shaking your fist at all the injustice life is not what he commends whatsoever. And, and, and trust me, he could do it. He understood. He saw all the terrible stuff. And yet he commends joy. You will live and work and struggle. You will be hurt. You will cry. You will struggle all the days of your life. But he recommends us doing this by picking up the good gifts of God along the way and rejoicing as one who understands that they are only pilgrims, that they are living for something that's far greater than what's around them. Now, in no way is he saying that the enjoyment of God's gifts are the chief end of man. He's not saying that here. In fact, he's already told us over and over again, he's called us to the fear of God and that relating to God properly is everything. He's simply saying to us, we need to recognize that pursuing joy as a gift from God is a wonderful thing, and he commends it to us. So, can you relate to our author and how the way that he sees the world? I don't even know everything that's going on in this room. I know enough that in your situation, you see things where it looks like the wicked prosper and prolong their days. And you are righteous and you pursue Christ and you love him and awful things happen to you. Can I encourage you and remind you, as Andrew Peterson says, do, do, do you feel the world is broken? Are you anxious or bothered by all the pain and struggle that you suffer? The recommendation for joy, listen guys, I get it. The recommendation for joy here can feel empty. It can feel like fake, like, like we're just like putting on a smile. Is that what you're telling us to do? 
when all things go wrong, we just find joy somehow? How can someone truly find joy when all of the important things in life seem to be going wrong? I submit to you, there is only one true way. It's what chapter 8 has been telling us all along here. We are pilgrims here, citizens of a heavenly kingdom, living here in obedience, knowing that our Lord will bring justice and flourishing in His time. Now, Ecclesiastes leaves us here, both the, but the rest of the Bible doesn't leave us here. Do you understand? We'll, we'll, we'll ask it going. As Jesus was teaching, He knew that we were struggling with this kind of stuff. I'm going to go to Matthew 6. He says this, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The Gentiles, in other words, those that do not fear God, seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need all of them. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You and I can obey our rulers. We can have hope in the judge who's over all the earthly rulers, and we can have joy in this life because we are living for a totally different kingdom. Don't get me wrong, this world is very important. It's wonderful, and he will make it anew. But I'm telling you, we live for the kingdom that he proclaims in himself. My friends, not only is this a promise of a different kingdom, I tell you that the king has come. Listen to how Jesus talks to Pilate. John 18, 33-37, he says this, so Pilate answered his entered his headquarters and asked again and again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered. Listen how he talks about the kingdom, whose it is. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born, and for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Do you realize what this means? The king has come. He has borne witness to the truth. There really is a kingdom. Kohelet was telling the truth. There's something bigger than just the rulers of the earth that we have to submit to. There's something far greater, and the king has come to bear witness to this truth. More importantly, though, than just living in this wise kingdom, we are called to fear God and to rejoice in his gifts. And how could have he, the writer of Ecclesiastes, ever have known the wonderful and glorious incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would be the answer to how God would make all things right? It's wonderful. I'll tell you how he did it. He did so by faith. And so do we. I, I didn't see Jesus Christ this morning. I have not seen him. Um, by faith, we know that he is and that he reigns on high at the right hand of the Father, and we live for him. 
And we seek, rightly, by faith, we seek his kingdom. Not to live our best lives here in this kingdom. Guys, I'm telling you, it is really tempting to live the best way we possibly can now. But we have been brought into a kingdom that's far greater, far better, and we do so by faith. So brothers and sisters, I call us to act wisely in this world, even though we cannot find out all the intricate ways of God and all his processes, what he has given to us is sufficient. It's more than enough. By faith, we trust the Lord Jesus Christ. In him, we can obey our earthly rulers. In him, we can trust the judge who is over all other earthly rulers. And in him, we can have joy in God's good gifts. Let's pray together. Our Father, please help us. Man, we're just so tempted by all the stuff around us. We're tempted to think that you don't make things right and you don't care. Our, our hurts are so deep, God. We recognize that you're in control, but it just, it just wears on us, Lord. I pray that you would comfort your people in Jesus Christ today, that they would look to you by faith and know a better reality, a better truth than what we can only see with our eyes. So Lord, I ask that you would encourage your people with faith. Would you give them grace to know as tomorrow the junk happens and all the different situations that are hard, would they not grumble and complain, but Lord, would they look to you in faith and trust you alone. We thank you for these words. Help us, God, to obey our earthly rulers properly. Help us, Lord, to trust you and have hope in the judge who is over all the earthly rulers. And God, we ask that you would help us to pursue joy. We love you and thank you for your great grace to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're not a part of a gospel-centered church in your city, we encourage you to find and belong to one. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit CBC Virginia.